You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast, bringing you news and opinion about surf culture, characters, coaching and competition from the team at the Surf Simply Coaching Resort. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses, go to surfsimply.com. Hello and welcome to the Surf Simply podcast. This is Rue Hill and we've got a very special episode for you this week. I'm sorry that it's been a while since we put out an episode. We've all been very busy at the Surf Coaching Resort and as uh, some of you who may know who follow me on Instagram, I've been away on the trip of a lifetime in Indonesia. Um, inserting shameless plug here, my Instagram account is at simply Ruhill, R-U-H-I-L-L. Uh, a huge thank you to Javier Olivan, who uh, organized the whole trip, and to the crew of the Dunya Baru, which is this incredible luxury yacht that we were staying on, going around uh, the islands of Indonesia. Big thank you to Ty Graham, who uh, taught me how to tow surf, which was incredible. And we'll talk about another another episode. Uh, actually, we're going to have him on the show at some point in the next few weeks. Um, uh, this episode, though, is kind of a special one. As some of you know, I've got really into water photography over the last few years. And one of the guys on the boat with us was Demir Dorsey, who was a world tour photographer for many years. He was taking all the photographs on the trip. And uh, I didn't even realize actually that he surfs amazingly well until after a couple of days of surfing uh, and him, we were surfing and he was shooting photographs, he decided to tow into a wave and I grabbed his camera and swam onto the inside and Ty towed him into a wave and he let go of the rope and just got this stand-up barrel all the way through and it was like, wow, this guy is one of the best surfers I've ever seen and didn't even happen to mention it for the last week. Um, Really, really nice guy. So... I interviewed him actually on the boat uh, about a week or two ago, and uh, you'll you can hear the diesel engine just rumbling away in the background a little bit. So apologies for the sound quality. We tried to pull it out, but you can still hear it a little bit. The conversation that we have is all about surf photography, but specifically in water surf photography. So if any of you listeners are interested in getting into taking photographs in the water just for fun or if it's a profession that you want to get into, then this is really an episode for you. If you haven't thought about getting into surf photography before, in water photography, I mean, I really suggest you do. It's a fantastic way of cross-training for surfing. So when you're surfing, it's you know mostly your lower back and your arms, and you're, you're doing a lot of paddling. And of course, when you're swimming around in the water, it's mostly your glutes and your legs that you're using. It's also a lot easier to be out in big, heavy waves with a camera than it is with a surfboard, because when an intimidating wave comes at you, you can disappear underwater and you haven't got that surfboard um, pinning you to the surface so it means you're getting out in the ocean on days where otherwise you might stay on the beach you can get into it now so cheaply just by going on amazon and getting a pair of defin swim fins uh, which we can link to in the show notes and um, a few hundred dollars worth of, of pretty basic equipment which we'll talk about later in the interview and i'll link to in the show notes as well it's so much fun as we talk about in the show i enjoy going out and taking photos in the surf every bit as much as i go out Um, and enjoy surfing it's a really good way of ingratiating yourself into a surf community as well if you've arrived in a new place and uh, you want to get to know everyone in the water they're going to warm to you a lot quicker if you're out taking photos of them and sharing those photos rather than uh, taking waves from them we talked a little bit about the development of the industry as it's changed from film to digital uh, and how that impacted people like Demir who who had to learn the old school way. And we also, towards the end of the interview, talk a lot about K2 
kit. So when I first got into surf photography, I bought a lot of the wrong lenses and bodies and housings trying to figure out what was the right stuff to use. I couldn't find anything online about it. So Demir and I, towards the end of the interview, talk a lot about um, what's the right cameras to buy, what's the right lenses to buy, what are the different housing options. So again, if, if uh, you want to get into surf photography, this is a surf photography special and I hope that you'll find it really helpful and interesting. You can check out Demir's work at demirdorsey.com. His name is Demir, spelled D-A-M-E-A, and his last name is Dorsey, D-O-R-S-E-Y. So demirdorsey.com, and you can find him on Instagram at demir underscore Dorsey. If you're doing a trip round Indonesia on a boat or, you know, a land camp or anything, and you're looking for a photographer or a surf guide, I cannot recommend Demir highly enough. We were on a boat for 10 days together. Um, and while it was a big and beautiful boat, spending 10 days together on a boat, you really do get to know someone really well. And uh, there's not a lot of people in the world that I would feel comfortable spending 10 days on a boat with. Demir absolutely is one of those people. I would um, invite him on any boat trips that we do in a second. So just a fantastic human being, an incredibly knowledgeable guy. I hope you enjoy the interview. I'm sitting here now with Demir Dorsey. Welcome to the podcast, Demir. Thank you, Rupert. <laughs> and uh, so for our listeners who might not be familiar with uh, with you, could you tell us a little bit about who you are? Uh, I'm an average Joe <laughs> that enjoys surfing and I'm a photographer. That's what I enjoy doing. Um, been doing it for 15 years or so. Um, water photography is my favorite, mainly surfing. Uh, not necessarily underwater, you know in the water with surfers. Um, I've worked for Transworld Surf for about seven years as a senior staff photographer. I've worked with uh, most surf publications around the world and websites and uh, most of the major companies, everything from Quicksilver, Billabong, Red Bull, etc. You've seen it all pretty much in terms of being out there with some of the best guys in the world, swimming out at Pipeline and shooting the guys on tour. And, and you were on the world tour for how many years? Um, the the latter part of my career was uh, was targeting the for the magazine the the, the, the highest profile guys and uh, so I did follow around say about sixty five percent of the tour um, to the places with the best guys was was a dream job it was great so I was going to say I mean to to most of us who haven't done that that does seem like just the most amazing job in the world getting to go to these locations and be out in the water when there's just the best guys in the world surfing and shoot them from the water. Um, what's the reality of it like? If I complained about any of it, everybody would be like, <laughs> shut up. No, but you know, anything that you do is, is uh, you know, I always say kind of, even if you were like Bono and you're a rock star, like you're going to go on stage some evenings and just be like, I've got to sing where the streets have no name again. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. So like, you know, there's got to be, what's, what's the reality of being a, a photographer following around the world tour? I mean, I'm sure there are ma magical moments and, and then there are times when you're like really grinding it out. It's a, it's the full spectrum, but at the end of the day, it's a, it's a dream job and I, I appreciated it and I took it very seriously and I, I purposely knew you had to do a good job. You had to work hard. You had to get up when you didn't want to get up because there was no one telling you, you know, anytime you knew it was going to be shit and you're like, oh, if I don't get down there, someone else will and I'll look bad. I need to get there. And, you know, so that was the, the stuff that was tough. But um, all in all, once you were there doing it every day, you never really complained. It's like you're not sitting at a desk pounding out keys all day in the dark hole <laughs> you're out in the sun you're in the surf you're with cool people and 
at the end of the day, you're, you're tired and feel good about what you did. Yeah, that's always one of the nice things is when you get a bed at the end of the day, just exhausted, like physically rather than mentally. Yeah. It's one of the things I love about surfing. So when you're on the tour, what, what were there spots that you really got excited to go and shoot at? And then when there were, were there spots where you were a bit like, oh, I could handle not going to Bells this year? Well, that was the other That thing. was me just priming you. Yeah, yeah well, <laughs> funny thing is, I think I went to Bells once. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> twice because someone hired me for one of the other shoots there. But exactly, I, I kind of tried to, you know, a magazine, it, it needs to put out stuff people are interested in. So we didn't spend a lot of time focusing on uh, the surf at the US Open. It was more the, the media hype around it or the, all the crazy shit that was happening around that event or you know but i would definitely target hawaii where everything is interesting to everybody you know from the daily life of what people are doing there to paddling out at pipe or off the wall or rock rocky point or you know everything was amazing there same with uh you know like in south of france uh, as an american and an american consumers we're, we're a very international publication, but as you know, for American consumers, they were like, wow, exotic France or, you know, Tahiti and, um, and, and insane waves and culture and all of these types of things. So always choosing the ones that would be provide some good content. You know, yeah. I, I've never been to Rio, you know, I've never been to Brazil and there was a reason for that. I just never felt like, uh, spots like that had a whole lot i'm sure if i went there you know it would be a fresh set of eyes and i would get great photos of stuff um but i've gone i try to stick to the places that i'm going to for sure get some good content because it's a it's a substantial investment for companies which was getting harder and harder to fund yeah as we progressed in that industry so i saw i don't know if you've seen this but uh the re the brazil section in view from a blue moon and i thought that they did the best job of anyone i've ever seen of doing like a portrait of the city you know going around and they did all those like lifestyle shots from the city i well, just thought that was really cool that's the really cool thing about traveling out with uh, someone like blake and uh john john uh they realize they're going to get good surf content but they are also appreciative of the fact that they're in another country and that each country has some awesome things to to provide and to go check it out. So if the surf's not pumping, they would, they would be, let's, let's go check this out. Let's go do this. And, and they would document it as well. And so I, I love traveling with those guys. Those, that's a good example. I, I used to try to pick guys that I felt, um, could, could do the, the content of, of surfing, which is, that's the no brainer part for all of us, but getting some other content, you know, photos of some gorgeous things. Sometimes getting these guys out of the house is tough, but those particular guys, they loved it. And it makes my job easier. So uh, as a surf movie consumer this year, like two of the movies that have really leapt out for me is, is that one, View from a Blue Moon, and also the stuff coming out of Deus. And I know that you've worked with both of those guys. Is there is there anyone that you see particularly now shooting surf photography or, or surf films that, that sort of you're, that really impresses you, that you're kind of like keeping an eye on? Not anyone I'm keeping an eye on. I'm actually more out of the loop than I've ever been in my life. <laughs> yeah. Where I live now. And, and, uh, I found the, the goods and bads of that. But yeah, I don't have anyone that I've been following around or keeping my eye on until they come out with it or if I've been invited on something. Um, when I worked for the magazine, I was very on the pulse of everything because that's what the magazine does. And they basically, I'm out on the road stuck in one place for some certain amount of time and I'm really out of the loop, but I would come back and I would immediately be updated on what is going on when I had the magazine connection. 
Um, now that's a whole nother job trying to keep up with everything. And I'd say that I have more than ever dropped off uh, and fell out of touch for a little while, kind of as a semi-retirement slash yeah, say, probably feels quite nice. Yeah. It, to get excited about it again, you need to remove yourself, I think, for a while. And then uh, then you start to appreciate it again. And that's kind yeah. of what's been happening is I, I went through a, a period of doing some other things. And at the end of the day, I, I accepted all the change that's happened in the industry and just said, you know what? I the fact of the matter is I just love doing this. So let's, let's do what you love to do and, and see what happens from there. And I should say the reason that we're sitting talking now, we're on this beautiful luxury yacht <laughs> cruising around and you're the photographer on this trip that we're, that's been put together, but you've, you've chosen now, now that you're kind of, you've stepped away from the scene a little bit, you've chosen to base yourself in Changu in Bali. Yeah. And um, I know that quite a lot of our listeners are based in Changu as well, or are regular visitors there. Nice. And, um, yeah, it's just why, why was that the place that kind of leapt out to you? I mean, there's the, I know there's a lot of exciting stuff happening there, but um, like for you, what was what was special about Chengdu as opposed to all the other places in the world you could have chosen to settle, like the North Shore or uh, you know back in the states? So Bali's always been a real special place for me. I've traveled all around the world, and uh, I felt that uh, Bali just has a really nice feel. Um, it's a nice in between, and then the end the end of end of all of this is that Indonesia has amazing surf and it's you know it's not too hard to access and it's pretty it's relatively inexpensive to get to it and it's warm and you know when you're in Bali itself you have all of the amenities of a western world and all the culture of the of Bali plus the interaction of friends of mine from all around the world it's a really good hub a great hub, actually. Like, you know, I have my European friends come through, my American friends, well, very few American friends, but American friends do occasionally come through. <laughs> Lots of Australian friends. Um, it, it's, Bali's just great. You know, we've got amazing food. We've got a lot of things to do. The cost of living is relatively inexpensive compared to other places. It's, uh, it's comfortable. And I, I was really able to kind of shut off and sit down and figure out what I wanted to do next in my life. And it's got great food as well. I mean, <laughs> I mean it, we're lucky in Masara because we have a couple of really nice restaurants, but only a couple. And going into Changu, it's just like, there's a new place here, there's a new place there. When I was there last week, uh, I went to the, the opening of the Tiger Bar, the new little sushi bar. Yeah. And I was lucky enough to meet a lot of the guys that you, I'm sure, know really well who, who work at Deus and are locals in the area. And... Uh, it was kind of intimidating when I walked in because everyone is so like cool looking, you know, and like everyone's so beautiful and young. Don't write yourself off. Just, it's pretty uh, cool. Rip. Thanks, man. <laughs> no, I went like just the nicest group of people. I like by the end of the evening, I was like, oh, I could see myself living here. This is a pretty awesome place. Yeah. So I want to go back to just something you were talking about before. You sort of just mentioned casually you dropped in oh, when you're shooting out at Pipeline. So, I mean, that's a huge thing uh, to, to just I want to kind of talk about it for a second. Can you just talk a little bit about what it's like to swim out at pipe on a big day, um, you know, and there's back door obviously going the other way. And then you've got the channel between pipe and the beach park where you're swimming out. And, you know, as a photographer, you're sitting right on the inside. So you're not, when you're seeing that big set coming, you're not paddling for the horizon. You're, you're hoping to get the shot. So, I mean, what, what's the psychology of that like and, and what does it take and how does that differ from if you were out there surfing it? I think that the, the photography side is, you know, having been doing it for so long, starting out when there was a lot less photographers out there to where it is now, um, it's a lot like surfing it. Um, 
you you have to have uh, first of all respect for the location then you have to have respect for the people in the water um, the surfers and the photographers um, respect is a big thing there for obvious reasons if you don't respect the surf you're gonna you're just gonna get torn apart and then uh same with the the people you know people put time in and they deserve respect for what they've done and you need to to pay attention to those small details uh, about respect. And um, it's amazing out there. And especially if you respect everybody, they'll respect you back and Mm -hmm. it's a much better experience. Um, Paddling out there, swimming out there, so you're you're standing on the beach, and yeah. you're looking at those. That's what I'm, I'm like trying to give that kind I've, of like. I've, uh, I've, I've stood there. I've stood there before on the beach on a big day, and just thought to myself, "Oh, it turns out I'm not a big wave surfer." Yeah, <laughs> immediately. Yeah. So standing there on the beach, um, it's one of those arena type things where you are really close to what's going on, mm. and it's intense. It's you know, ten foot pipeline breaks. It cuts down through the water, hits the reef, the ground shakes. Some tourist is standing there next to you and they're literally like frothing out on you going, you're going to swim out there. And I'm just like, I'm in my zone, just like blocking them out. Just like, shh, I'm focusing. (laughs) And that rip runs sort of like a river So from the left to right as you're standing on the beach towards that channel that that kind of then goes out by the left at pipe. Yeah. You you, you call it a channel, but you know, when it's 10 foot, it's, it's a raging river and you're trying to get near the channel you know, that spot, like you, you have to time it after so many sets, you know, how many waves are in these sets and then how far apart are the sets? And, you know, if you mistime something, you, you could end up down at, at a rocky point, you know, <laughs> gas chambers first, then rocky point. It's, it's, it's literally like a raging river and you'd be standing there watching it and, you know, taking in the moment and you'll be standing, you know, with like Mick Fanning or, a, you know, a, a local Hawaiian charger like Danny Fuller and just standing there and just looking at it and you, you really get, hyper-focused on what you're going to do because it's this very second you jump in the water it's it's game on it's you're using every bit of knowledge you've ever had in your life to get in the right place at the right time deal with whatever little situation that that happens and and move through each step to get to where you want to be um out in the lineup because you need to be in the right spot at the right time and it, it takes a, a lot of knowledge and a lot of experience and it's not just one of those things that you're just going to jump out there and be like this is great and you get in some very scary situations when so, it's bigger. So when when that wave's breaking as the beach, is, as most of our listeners will know, you've got the left, which you know we call pipeline, and then the right, which we call backdoor. Um, and I guess when you've got those big sets coming in and you're shooting into that left, you can you can swim a little wide of it. But when you're um, when you're on the backdoor side, when you see the surfers going right, there's not really anywhere to hide there when a set comes in. I guess. Oh, yeah. So that the point you're saying is like so when it's five six foot. Um, you're going to get a lot more people out in the lineup and it is a channel. It's pretty, pretty effortless to kind of just slide out and be out at pipe. As long as it's not too west of a swell, like a standard, you know, it's just coming in and you can, you can swing wide of the sets and you're pretty safe and you've got a longer lens. You're just, it's, it's easy. I mean, it's come right out and say it's pretty much easy. Um, when you get in a fit with a fisheye at six foot or so, it's, um, I wouldn't say it's hard. It's pretty easy for me, you know, but I've been doing it my whole life. I've been surfing and I've been swimming, but you know, the average person can easily get themselves into a a pretty stupid situation pretty quickly and, you know, either get in someone's way or uh, be in the wrong spot. But when then that jumps to eight to 10 to 12 foot or a little bit of West swell in it, 
you know, the game has changed substantially. And when you're um, saying 10 foot, 12 foot, you're talking Hawaiian. Yes. So the front of the waves is how big. I'm, I'm really bad at calling exact feet, but, you know, just as a generalization, I'd say three to four f- times overhead, like your body height over you. When you're there and you're just, if you ever go up to like your, your bed or your bike and you stand next to it and you're taller than it, you try laying down on the floor next to it because your head is at floor level. Right. And you look up at your bike or your surfboard or your bed and you're like, oh, see, you know couple feet yeah. <laughs> it seems a lot bigger um when you're in the water and your head is literally on the floor the surface of the water and you're looking up and it's just ginormous and then you look down and you're like well there's really not a lot of water between me and the reef and this massive triple to quadruple overhead wave um but what you were asking is what so that's that's the safer safer easier side in general right if you if back door is kind of turning on and you you make that uh i i've come at points where I was in the lineup and there was a lot of guys kind of shooting pipe. And then I would notice that nobody's over shooting uh, at back door. And one, one time in particular, I saw Kelly um, go right. And I was like, okay, so he went right. It it looked good. And um, everybody was really hyper-focused on the left pipe and he kept going right. And I was like, you know what, this is how you got to make a point of difference. You need to go and you need to shoot something different than what everybody else is getting because right. all the magazines are going to have the same thing. I need to go get something else. So I swam over to um, the other side of the peak, which, you know, eight foot pipe, swimming over the peak. It's like, get over there and you get, try to get in position. You have to be a little bit further, but it's a little bit more of a run down the line um, for back door. And then Kelly took off on this, uh, you know, eight to 10 foot Hawaiian wave. And I pushed myself, this was the film days. I pushed myself in a little further, lined up with him. He's riding like a seven foot board and uh, maybe something like a 610. Back then they used to use a little bit longer boards, a little more gunny. And I lined up with him. Great. Got this great shot. And then I pulled out the back so I didn't get pulled over and sucked over. And I looked and then right behind it was just like, another wave that was way bigger and I was way inside and because the, the wave, the current pulls you in with the wave and I turned around to go back out and it was, there was, I, I stopped and was like, okay, do I race to get under it or do I turn and go to the beach? Cause I'm like right in the middle and it's, it's every second counts. And I'm just going, I'm still trying to decide this is not good. <laughs> okay. Ne- next thing, assess the situation, look down and it's like three feet four feet deep and there's there's no cuts and holes in the reef nothing it's just like a flat street i was like this is going to be really bad <laughs> like really bad you know you you really know you're in a in a bad situation and and i couldn't decide which way to go it was really it was uh there wasn't a lot of offshore breeze or anything it was really calm winds that these are the times when it's really hard to make those decisions because it's hard to evaluate what's going on and you're right in that in-between zone. And your only options really are to, to swim out and just try and sneak under it before it breaks. Well, that, that's what I'm and, saying. Or, or to go and in, in and, and hope it's exploded before yes, it goes to you. Yeah, that's what I was trying to, to do is is pick the best, the least, the, the my best option with the least amount of risk at this point. Like I realized I wasn't going to make it under this thing. And if I was, if I dared be within a five foot radius of where that lip landed, I could be destroyed. Like I could be hospitalized. I could, I could die, you know, and I was evaluating it as such. (laughs) So, um, I realized that I couldn't get under it. It was going to be too close. I, 
uh, stayed right about where I was and I couldn't dive deep underwater because I was already next to the bottom. So I just kind of assumed a crass position where I put one arm over my head and, and kind of hugged the camera body because it already had some great photos on it. Like, right. Don't want to lose that shot of Kelly Slater. That. It's like you're possibly going to hospital, <laughs> yes. but it's like I've got to keep the camera yep. safe. You've got it. You start prioritizing everything the best you can. And, um, and I just braced for impact, knowing that I was just far enough in that it was going to break in front of me. Like, I, all right, I, I, I had avoided the, the train wreck, yeah. but I'm still going to be part of this train wreck. I'm just not going to take it in the, the, uh, the direct impact of it. So it broke probably 10 feet in front of me and, and I didn't go deep. I just kind of stayed right near the surface like that. And the thing hit me and I got whiplash. I got hit so hard. I like, Saw stars got just violently thrashed about. Um, just I, it was like it was like a car accident, you know, like with a seatbelt on. You just getting thrashed dramatically, and then I'm as all I'm doing is going, just don't hit the bottom, you know, don't don't collide with. There's this this little rock towards the inside, this little rock, this rock and the inside, and and you know the current comes straight in. Um, and then it pushes down and you start that trek yeah. across the beach. The one we talked about, it looks like the river that heads towards Ayukai. You get pressed in towards that. And then you either try to make it to the beach or you're okay. And you go back out. And, um, I gathered my senses, you know, checked where I was, held my neck, really was rattled, but I was like, I'm all right. Um, camera's good. I didn't lose my fins. Uh, I'm all right. So, and I was, current was flying along and, I make a decision either go in or cut back out. And I cut back out into the, the channel, came back around and, uh, and this next wave came and I was right in position and Kelly Slater was on this one. A, a bit of time had passed, yeah. <laughs> but not that much. And I was right back in position and Kelly took off on a, a left at pipe and I was right there and I got another shot of him. And I swear he kind of like looked and like recognized me because I was the only guy on the right. Yeah. <laughs> like, a couple of waves before and now I was on the left and he, I swear he kind of saw noticed it and then um and I got a shot and then he came back paddled by and he was like is that you on the right and I was like yeah and he was like Whoa. <laughs> yeah he's like nice he's like didn't think you were still out here <laughs> and I was like I can't believe I'm still out here either <laughs> uh, Mama, you got some props from the big man out yeah, of pipeline. that's was, a real badge of honor you can wear with pride I don't know if he remembers it or not but of course I it was it was a moment you know it was, it was back in the day shooting film um and it was early on and it was for me it was like you know I could do this you know I'm gonna I'm gonna tough it out and and I when I went in that afternoon I was like ibuprofen, ice, my neck. I had whiplash. I had a full case of whiplash. It hurt so bad, but, you know. How did the photos come out? Oh, I got an amazing shot of him um, uh, at the time. And, of course, then you would have had to take the film off to get developed and wait for it to come back. It's like Christmas morning. (laughs) So, I I mean, it must be now when you're, you know, we were talking about equipment earlier on on the boat, and, um, you know, you, you were describing some of what you had to do when you were working with film and trying to teach yourself about shutter speed and you know that what f-stop you were going to be shooting at and And all of that exactly so how did that process work and how does that compare to what people are are doing now what did that what did that look like for you learning well you really had to if you're going to work and be a professional you really needed to know what you were doing ahead of time so you had to do your um 
you need to educate yourself. Um, I didn't go to any school or anything, so I just spent a lot of time educating myself, reading a lot, talking to mentors, you know, like Larry Moore with Flame at Surfing. He helped me the most in the beginning. Um, you know, they gave me some vital tips and stuff like that, and then I would read up on it. And uh, you had to sit there, basically take a roll of film, go shoot with your friends. You had 36 shots. I mean, think of it nowadays. It's like I've got over a thousand photos that are available to be shot at any time on my camera. I had 36 photos. Um, you don't pull the trigger for just anything. You know, you, you really try to time that moment so you could maximize the amount of time you're in the water. Um, and you needed to kind of, in order to get to the point where you could shoot it and know that you weren't going to get a blacked out freaking mess or an overexposed crap shoot you had to kind of be like okay so when these lighting conditions are like this i make note of uh, those conditions and uh, if they change while i'm in the water i should adjust accordingly and uh you know if i'm shooting in the barrel it's going to be like this if the guy's doing open face turns it needs to be this so every the variables were always changing and you did your best to kind of assess what was going on and then you know take your notes and then develop the film and then compare your notes so, so see what you'd write on the film. You can't write on you the had, film. I mean, on, on you'd, you'd, like, you'd make a note on the you know the package. I'd of the film number the in. I'd number the film, uh, the little uh, slide film roll. I'd number it, and then I'd have notes for that one. Um, and then you'd compare that to like yeah. your notebook that you'd had on the day where you'd written down yeah. all the settings. Because you wouldn't have um, the, the, the film comes back with no information. It doesn't tell you what aperture you're shooting at. It doesn't, you know, nowadays there's metadata with all this information. It doesn't say what lens you were using. It doesn't say uh, what shutter speed, f-stop, what ISO. I mean, the, the film says what f, what uh, ISO it is, I think. I can't even remember now. Jeez. Um, it would say what kind of film is. Velvia, you know, like T-Max. It would say these things on the, on the slides or, that you got back but it didn't have any other information that you had to know that Yeah, just had to know it. And I was, my memory is terrible. I had to write that shit down. <laughs> so, so the, the, like the learning curve, I guess is, you know, let's say, let's say you, you were going to shoot like 10,000 photos over however many weeks or months or years to, to get to that um, point where you sort of felt with a high degree of confidence on any given day you could have all the settings on your camera right mm -hmm. I mean, i'm pulling the number ten thousand kind of out of the air maybe a little malcolm gladwell number or something but um and then but nowadays you can do that you know you can just shoot with the camera look at the photo on the back of the screen look at what all the settings were changing immediately again. What the learning curve is dramatically yeah. shortened so that, that i was going to say what well, give us a sense of that i mean is that learning curve gone from like years down to weeks or, or from years to months like how, how does that how has it changed what kind of what's the scale look like i don't know exactly but I, and per person per se but yeah it it is the learning curve has definitely decreased and it's been a lot easier you know you take a pick up a camera and just press the button and look at what is on the back and if you have a a basic understanding you can tweak some things around and figure it out um, you know, then it comes down to the people just having a good eye or being creative and, and then experimenting with those things. It was just a lot easier. You could spend a whole day, shoot a thousand photos. If I shot a thousand photos back in the day, that's 36, just say 300 photos. So 10 rolls, 10 rolls, they cost like 750 a roll just to purchase the film. And then another seven fifty to develop it. So then, so you're looking at the best part of one hundred and fifty bucks just to see yeah. the, how the photos came out. Yeah. So it was, you know, you go on a trip, you come back with seventy five rolls of film, and 
and I was lucky enough to have the the mags pay for it at the time because they they uh, had, I'd proven myself enough, you know, that they'd pay for that. And you come back, and if if anything was screwed up, you just felt like such an idiot, you know. And mistakes happen, and so you you just try to minimize that. Nowadays, it's like there's nothing screwed up. You just shoot, fire it off, Brrr, yeah. thousands and thousands of photos. Just pick one. You know, so so you must have quite mixed feelings about it because on the one hand, the thing that you love and your is your career suddenly has been made much easier because of improvements in the technology. But on the flip side, you know, you invested this huge amount of time learning a very, very difficult skill um, through a very difficult route. And now you see people that are kind of hacking that just using digital technology. So, and that, I mean, it must feel a bit like I've put a lot of work in here and you guys just haven't had to do that work. How do you feel about it? That was my kind of bitter attitude at the beginning. You know, um, I, I just kind of felt like this is ridiculous. You don't know what you're doing. You just pick this camera up and blah, blah, blah. At the end of the day, I had to kind of remove myself from that because it's just a negative way to look at it. You know, it, it is what it is. Um, and there are talented people out there that even if they would have learned it in my time, that could be amazing now, you know, and, and are amazing now. Uh, you just have to accept what's going on and, and move on with it. I, uh, I did have that kind of salty, bitter feeling like, screw you, you don't know what you're talking about. And then they show some good work and you're like, that's pretty good. <laughs> but still, you didn't go through what I went through. Yeah. But so what? You know, that's, it's just their, their experiences will change for them later on. I think that was kind of, uh, the, the thing that really got for me, it was just so devalued in the amount you could get paid for it. You know, back in the day, you would get a good photo and it, you, you were like, you know, I really worked hard for this good photo and it was valued at such now you have really good photos and you'd be lucky to give them away. Yeah. And I'm looking at it going like, this is a really hard photo to get. And and then nobody wants to, to acknowledge that or pay for it or do anything. You're kind of like, well, you know what? I had to let all that stuff go. And you know what? I like this photo. It's my favorite. And I'm stoked whether you want. And they're like, well, we'll, we'll take it for free. I'll be like, no, no, I'll sit on it myself and enjoy it or whatever, or, or depend on the situation who you're giving it to or whatever. It's just the nature of that beast has changed dramatically that whole industry. And that was kind of why I kind of took some time off. So I wouldn't be the salty, bitter old dude. Yeah. (laughs) You're listening to the surf simply podcast. So, so I've got into doing, I mean, nothing like what you're doing, but I've got into doing some surf photography over the last few years uh, as listeners to the show will know, because they've heard me complain about it before, but you know, my back went out. And so I just needed something that I was doing. that wasn't paddling a surfboard and I started swimming and I wanted something to do when I was swimming. And, and so I got into kind of got into it through that route and I really enjoy it. I mean, there's times now when I look at the surf and like, I'm really like, ah, oh, do I want to grab my camera housing or my board? It's like, I just can't decide it when it's, when it's like overhead and barreling, I'll get my board pretty much the rest of the time. I'd almost rather be out there with the camera. And so it's, it's just so much fun. But I'm in a position, as are you now, where you know we don't have to rely on it for our income. Yeah. If you're if you had you know a young young person who is like in their late teens, early twenties, who really wants to become a surf photographer, who's something they really enjoy, you know, would you what route would you suggest they take? Uh, take? Do you think that there is a, a career that can be carved out of it now, and, and a good living can be made? Or at the end of the day, if you're a, a a great photographer and you've got a skill 
at anything you do, whether photography or anything, and you have a passion for it, you, you can do, you can be the best if you drive to be the best. And that's really what you want. Um, it's, it's an amazing hobby. It's an amazing lifestyle. It's a, it's a great career. It's, you know, it's whatever you make of it from a hobby or a career. It's, it's just, it's fun at the end of the day. It's, you know, the thing that used to say to me when I was younger is like, how do you, the surfers would be like, how do you not grab your board? How do you grab a camera and shoot photos when it's good like that? And um, to this day, I still get a lot of satisfaction from getting a good photo of somebody. Um, a, because being in the water, I need to challenge myself to be in the right place, to meet up with this person at this exact moment, to get that, capture that great thing. You know, I'm composing other things. I'm trying to pull all this stuff together to make it happen. It's a challenge. And when it all comes together, and I've done what I would want to set out to achieve on this, this photo. I feel good. I like what I produce. The person in it is just ecstatic. They're like, wow, this is insane. I'm so stoked. And, you know, even guys that get photos every day, you, you, I'm trying to up the level to where they're impressed. You know, they, they see good photos themselves all the time. But when one of those guys goes, wow, this is a great photo. It's like, you know, you've made that happen. You know, it, it's, it's not just luck. It's it's an effort. It's a skill. And um, I've, I've found sometimes when I've been shooting that I've shot people that are really good surfers and I've got a photo that I'm really stoked with and I'm like, hey, check it out. And they've seen a ton of photos like that and they're like, yeah, it's great, thanks. You know. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes someone that, that isn't as good and I get a photo of them on a, on a wave, which for me, I'm like, oh, it's not super exciting. And then you just see their whole face light up and they're like, oh my God, is that me? You know? And it's like, yeah, like it gives me a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's super cool when you, when you get to like give that gift of giving to someone a tangible thing that represents a really special moment in their life. And that's, I think, when I took the time off uh, to focus on some other things that would uh, maintain my lifestyle so that I could still shoot photos uh, or appreciate shooting. And I, I stopped shooting kind of professionally. I'm not really, I still kept getting, doing jobs, but um, I pulled back a lot so that I wasn't stressed out by the things that were happening and just let it be. And then, um, you know, shot with some, some uh, tourist guys at, at a, like a resort or on a boat trip. And, you know, exactly what you just said. I, I shot some photos and I was like, this is really not that good. And they're looking over my shoulder going, oh my God, is that me? And I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, uh-huh. And they're like, oh, this is amazing. And I was, and I'm looking at it going, you know, it's nothing special, but you know, this isn't, I'm not shooting Kelly Slater or John John right there. And you know, this is Joe Schmo. This is this, this guy I know that just is like so freaked out about something really average. It felt, felt good again too. I was like, oh man, this guy's really fired up. You can have that. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, and then I started doing that for a while and then it started making me appreciate even just average, not just average photos, but just the whole process of hanging out and shooting photos and enjoying it and not making it too stressful or taking it too seriously and just having fun again. And yeah, I think when we were, we were out surfing the other evening at that little right hand wedgie reef break, and uh, it was kind of slow. And, you know, we were on our surfboards sitting out the back, kind of like twiddling our thumbs, waiting for the sets to come in. And you were just like having a blast on the inside, like yeah. body surfing into waves <laughs> with that fisheye lens, doing like little selfies and getting down by the reef and stuff. And then come out to you guys. You don't even know what I'm doing. I take photos of you guys and then I show it to you on the computer afterwards. And you're like, what? That's yeah. what you were doing? And yeah, and it's like pictures of you guys just sitting there, but they look really cool. Yeah. It's challenging yourself in a moment where there's, where everyone's not seeing any opportunity 
and then turning it into an opportunity. That was one of the things I learned from um, working the magazine. If the magazine's paying for this trip, they want some photos, you know? Yeah. So you work and you try, but at the end of the day, even if no one was paying for that, it's like, I like what those look like. I enjoy doing that. So I go out and I try to challenge myself to get a good photo in an environment you wouldn't necessarily think you could. Well, some other person would be sitting there like, you know, say a girl that's never surfed or, or someone just sitting there, they'd be like, look at this amazing sunset and this calm water. And we're like, it's flat. And they're like, it's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just another, and you know, another way of looking at it. If you pull it out of that context and put it in another environment, it, it's, it's just gorgeous, just the way it is with no wave, nobody, nothing going on. It's already stunning lighting. So, I mean, you got some beautiful ones with that really wide fish angle lens. And I, I want to ask you a little bit more about lenses in a moment. So when you were working for Trans World Surf, you're sort of paid as a salaried photographer. Um, and, you know, you, you were talking about now how it's difficult to, to, to have someone see the value in an individual photo. Like people don't want to buy an individual photo because there's so many photos out there, I guess, now. So, you know, just going back to what we're talking about, <coughs> if someone wants to get into being a surf photographer, really the, the career opportunity is to be sort of salaried by a media company uh, by a by a Red Bull or, or you know by a surf camp or someone, and then you're going out and you're just shooting photos because it's valuable to them as a business to have the photos. Selling them direct to the consumer is probably a lot harder than it used to be. Now, what happens in the past? Since I was already salaried or staff or you know doing jobs for um, the companies, a lot of those things were simultaneously. You know, like I was working for the magazine, documenting the tour, but I'd get good uh, free surf photos and sell those to companies. Uh, and you know, I'd run it by the magazine first, like, "Hey, do we want to use this?" And they'd be like, "No, you can, you can." Sell. I go, "They want to buy it. Quicksilver wants to buy this shot of Kelly Slater's net, or you know, whatever." Um, and so we communicate, and then they say, "Yeah," and I'd be like, "Great, this is a this helps subsidize my income. This is perfect." Um, but nowadays, uh, you know, the, there's not as much money maybe with the magazines, but the companies still have some money to do that type of stuff. When I was making that money, if I got a photo of just an average person, I would just give them the photo. Um, nowadays, since there's less money available from the media outlets or the, the companies and things like that, and Joe Schmo needs content for their personal uh, Instagram and their social media outlets, they, they actually find more value in it and they'll pay money for that. And so kind of have to subsidize that by selling it to Joe Schmo and they come up and they're, that's a really great photo of me. I'm like, well, I'm, you know, I don't want to say I didn't used to do this, but I've kind of, you kind of need to help pay for your equipment, you know, like my yeah. equipment gets destroyed in the ocean and in, in this environment all the time, you've got to get some money back to help continue to do this oh, yeah. to a degree. And a lot of people don't realize that until their camera dies or until the salt water has damaged something poorly. And they're like, wow, I've been shooting all these great photos and giving it away. And now I can't afford a new camera body, you know, and then they've got to go back to, to hardcore work for a while and stop their hobby while they save that money. So these are kind of steps to, to say, Hey, you don't have to, you know, charge a person a million dollars for this thing, but you know, if you can charge some money for it, at least you'll be able to recoup the cost of your equipment. And then if your work is just stunning and you find other professional ways of, uh, of outlets of earning more income from it, then, you know, you have to capitalize on them if you want to turn it into a career. So nowadays I think it's, you know, there used to be good photographers and then there were people that would help them be better businessmen where nowadays I think you have to be a complete package. You need to be your own little entrepreneur. You have to be good at um, self-promoting. You have to be good at uh, business 
you have to you have to look at so many more things. You become a, a one man business that that really has to do all of it, not just be a good photographer. Uh, I sympathise with the uh, you know cam- camera housing's getting ruined. The the camera budget at Surf Simile makes me want to cry. <laughs> it's like it's just heartbreaking. It's expensive. Oh uh, yeah, and you know, and of course with anything that's with salt water and sand, you know, the sea breeze with the salty air and it just kind of gets ruined. And we have you know, three coaches filming at any given moment. There's three of us usually actually swimming around in the water now, myself, Maureen and Harry. And um, Harry's doing a lot of video with a 70D and a 50mm lens. I shoot with the Sony A7S with the 55mm Carl Zeiss lens on it. Um, and Maureen, who does most of our in-water photography, which a lot of our listeners will be familiar with on our Instagram, she's shooting with a, a Canon 7D Mark II with a, fi- a fixed 50mm lens on. So... Could you just talk a little bit about um, I mean, all of those cameras were shooting with fixed 50 mil lenses, but they're all slightly different cameras. Could you just talk a little bit about if, you know, one of our listeners is wanting to get into shooting in the water just just for fun? What kind of equipment, what kind of body, what kind of lens do they want to get? What what company housing do they want to go with? Like, what, What's a good kind of starting point? There's a lot of options, but I, I as a as a professional um and you want to you want to stick with uh, something that's readily available that's going to have a lot of housing options. I would say Canon. I've used, I used Canon for probably twelve years solid. Um, can't say anything negative about Canon. They're great. They're tanks. They're they're technically perfect for cameras. Um, uh, Nikon or Nikon, if you're from Europe, is is also um, right up there. And then after that, I've been using Sony. Just because I, I like the uh, the mirrorless and the, the reduction in weight. Mm. So um, just, just for our listeners who might not know this, the Sony cameras are really kind of leading the market now in terms of the mirrorless cameras, which means that they're just much smaller and much lighter. Yeah. Um, not maybe as robust and hardcore as, as Nikon and Canon, but definitely making up for it in other areas such as the weight and, you know, they're really stepping up their game with providing a lot more lenses and they're really pushing for it. They want to get that market. They're doing it. So, um, so would you say the, the, the Sony A6000 is a pretty good body for people to start with? Actually, it's a great body for people to start with because it's not a, a very expensive investment for a camera body. And it will do all of the basic things that you need it to do. Like I, I, I use that now in a professional capacity to get the job done. It's an, it's a, it's like a four, four hundred, five hundred dollar body, or maybe no, a bit no more that's that. the 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 A fifty one hundred. But now there's there's the six, the A six thousand, A sixty three hundred, the A sixty five hundred is the 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 most up to date one, the A sixty five hundred, and it's probably about fifteen hundred dollars. Okay, and the, the Sony's, the mirrorless Sony's, which are smaller and lighter. That's they, this one. They lag behind the Canons only in as far as the the amount of photos per second. But then the Sony's got a new A nine coming out. Oh, that's not true. The, the in comparison, you would be saying the Canon 7D Mark II. The similar camera body in Sony is the A6500. They shoot about the same frames per second, so right around 11, 12 frames per second. It's a two-thirds crop sensor. Um, the, the quality of the images are exactly the same. They're both top-notch, great quality images. The difference in those is uh, they're similar in price, 
I think that the the 7D is more expensive and it's also a more robust body. That's what I was getting at. Is it's just a it's a it's a tank. You yeah. can you can pretty much throw that thing, drop it, and it'll pick it up. It'll work. If I throw the the Sony and drop it or something, it's there's a 99% chance it's going to be broken. It's just a little bit more flimsy, um, but technically it's spot on. And then if you're shooting in the water, um, the fixed 50 mil prime, that's a good place to start. Yeah. Um, any prime lens is, is a good call. Um, for the water, I think when someone's starting, it's good to be far enough back that you, you know, you can, uh, give yourself a little bit of time to, to be in the moment with your camera, looking at what's going on it and not have to worry about what's going on around you. Um, and, and 50 mil will do that a, a bit. Um, you know, if I was going to, it's, and it's a, it's a lesser cost investment, you know, like you can get a good, I think the Canon 50 mil is like 125 yeah, bucks. Yeah, exactly. So you're going, it's a lesser of an investment. You know, you get a basic housing with the 50, 50 mil port and a 50 million, you're probably your lowest investment right there that can do a lot and look really well, look good. And then you, you were out the other evening with a, like a fisheye lens. Could you just talk about what lens you had and, and why you chose to use the fisheye? Um, the look with the fisheye for me is, is nice when, um, you want to get really intimate with the wave and the, and the athlete and the surfer, you get in there and you can, even without a surfer, you can get really in tight on a smaller wave. Um, you really just, you're, you're right in there. You're in it. And when another person, like a, an athlete, the surfer comes down the line, you get a picture of them. It's with their interaction with the wave. It's really intimate. It's really up close tight. And, and it's interesting. It's, it's just, it's much more different of a look than a 50 mil. Um, and I like to, to do a variety of things and feels with the, my lenses that I use. Um, each lens ha- provides a different feel. So, and, so those fish eyes, particularly, I mean, the, the wave that you were using it at the other day was a very small takeoff spot, very wedgy kind of round wave. So you were able to take photos when it was barreling and get the hole inside of the face and the lip throwing around, which you couldn't, do in, in like you say in such an intimate way with the with a 50 mil lens um and you you had a 16 mil that was yeah so that since we talked and i recommended to you since you have a sony body to get the 16 mil with a fisheye converter um and since then i've noticed that sony has come out with a new lens a 10 to 18 i believe it was a f4 uh, I'm, I'm actually going to check on that again here but um, it's expensive, though. It's another. They keep coming out with these great lenses, but they charge for it. <laughs> so that's, like, that's one of the disadvantages with the yeah. Sony's over the Canons. They are pretty expensive. The lenses. Well, they used to be pretty comparable, and but they've they've been putting out their latest lenses, and they're substantially more expensive. Um, I don't know why, but they are. Technology is there. They shouldn't be so damn expensive, but they are, and but they. They're good lenses, you know. Yeah. They're really nice, really sharp, really well done. And these Carl Zeiss ones that I, I keep, of course, I'm always attracted to the the really crisp, clean, expensive ones. Because if you compare the two, you know, at the end of the day, I've taken uh, different lenses and compared them price wise, and I said, at the end of the day, it was worth the extra money. Yeah, you know, photo after photo after photo, it's gonna it's gonna pay itself back. And it's one thing I quite like just about le- about lenses and about talking about lenses is, you know, we were talking about film before and, and you and I were chatting the other day about, you know, vinyl and how it's kind of 
gone the, gone gone the same way as film, you know. Um, and a lot of DJs collecting records, writing the speeds of the tunes on all the records. And then now, of course, you know, you just go to Spotify, you type in the speed and they all just come up. Um, but lenses aren't going away. I mean, light has to needs space to be bent and you have to just bend physically bend the light. There's, that's, they're not going anywhere. So it, if you, if you collect over a lifetime, a series of lenses, they're not going to be defunct like your vinyl collection might be. True. And, and I think when you were back in the beginning, we were talking, the point we we're getting at is what to recommend and, um, which direction to head. Basically, I'm saying any of those three camera companies, Sony, Canon, Nikon, if you go with one of them, you kind of end up to some degree, you commit, you know, um, because when you start investing in all those lenses, they're like investing in, you know, they're going to be good. They're going to be around forever. Mm. And you're going to, you know, if you get a really good Canon 50 mil 1.2 and another Canon lens, another Canon lens, and then you buy a housing that works with Canon, then you're like, you're kind of locked in. You're locked in, you know, because you can keep changing your bodies out and stuff like that, but the, they only fit in so many housings. And if, you know, if every time you make a change and you have to change everything, it's very expensive to make a change. So I, I kind of feel like, you would, if you were starting from scratch and you were going to invest in one company, I, I feel from our conversations that you'd probably go towards Sony nowadays. Well, I was very invested in Canon and I, there was no, there's no, nothing wrong with Canon. They're great. Um, but I had a, a, a break in, in my villa in Bali and all that stuff was stolen. And there was a glitch with the insurance being out of town for whatever amount of time, whatever I lost like $30,000 worth of equipment. And uh, it it caused me to reevaluate. You know, I can be out of touch at times with whatever the latest technology is, but as soon as you dive in there and you you can get caught up really quick. And what I was finding out was that the mirrorless was starting to happen. Um, Their technology was there. They're investing in it, moving forward with it. And it's going to be the future. And I'm going to take a risk. And I, I went that route. Um, basically because I'd spent the last 15 years carrying around very, very heavy equipment and I was sick and tired of it. (laughs) And I was very easily swayed towards lighter, smaller equipment. So um, (laughs) let's say our listeners gone out and bought themselves a Sony a6000 or a a Canon 7D um, and then they've got a a 50mm lens to start off with and then maybe they've got a 10 or a something or a 10 to 16 mil lens for the wide angle shots. And then if you're shooting somewhere where it's like a big rolling ocean, open ocean kind of wave or or a beach break where people are moving around a lot, you were saying that you might shoot with like a a 70 to 200 mil lens. So a really long lens. And then, and then you can get people when they're a long way away from you and and you don't know exactly where they're going to take off and which way they're going to go. And 200 is about the biggest lens you would shoot in the water with. Yeah, there's, there's, um, with more and more people getting involved with uh, shooting from the water, the housings have have become much substantially better, much better. Um, and there's more variety of options. And um, the 70 to 200, that was one of my, the beginning was a fisheye. And then after uh, a fisheye, I think I had a 70 to 200 because it covered the most bases for me. Um, with the 7200, you've, you've got a quite a range. If you get out in a, in a playing field that's like a soccer field of distance, someone's getting a wave way over there, and you know I can zoom right into that. And it compresses the background. It gives it a really a different look, than, way different than a fisheye, and then even more different than a 50. Um, and that, I love that shallow depth of field you get with those long lenses. Yeah. You know, if you've got the really good ones, you can really 
focus, focus in on like a really shallow depth of field and focus on something here with the background getting really blown out. It looks amazing. Um, but it just gives you a, a, a lot more ability to be more places, you know, like not physically, but within that zoom, you can zoom right up into where they are way over there uh, and get a great photo. Um, it may end up maybe so far away and you zoomed all the way in and it may look like a pulled back photo, but you've covered such a vast distance with that lens in a short time. It's great. And then something gets close. You can pull it all the way back to 70 and you know, you you're getting stuff that's in a much closer range. So it was, it was nice. Um, there's, there can be problems with that, like really wedgy bendy waves and you know, you can't see into that thing because it's sucking out below sea level so that's where the shorter intimate lenses come into play you have to get within that little wedge yeah but if this is like an open point that's just very visible and fine you can be really far away you can even be sitting on a bodyboard or a surfboard and get a little bit of height and really see those things from far away and, it, and it's again it's just another point of view um and just talk to last thing i want to ask you about is, is just housings when I first got into it, I just didn't realize, and this it will make you laugh, but I didn't realize that some housings were negatively buoyant and some were buoyant. And so I went and bought an Icolite housing. <laughs> and the thing just like drops down. And Marina, our photographer at Surf Simile, he's like, you know, a 119 pound girl. She's desperately trying to swim to hold this thing out of the water. So, you know, we've, we've ended up going with Aquatech. Um, our Aquatech, they're a pretty good company to go with. Is there other companies that you'd recommend looking at housings? Um, being a very international person um, all around the world, a lot, you, it, it's kind of the region that you need to focus on. Um, in the U.S., it's uh, SPL and CMT. Water housings are probably, as a professional, they're, they're the, the, the biggest. Um, and if you're based in Australia, Aquatech would be the biggest. Uh, a lot of crossover. I um, mean, you know, Aquatech is in the U.S., and I know SPL and CMT uh, provide to the a lot of those Australian guys and uh, Europeans as well. There's a bunch more options out there, but in my opinion, with as long as I've been doing it, these guys have been around the longest. Those three: um, SPL, Aquatech, and CMT. Um, each provide something a little bit different, um, but they're all very good. They're all really, really good at what they do. There's other, there's other smaller brands that if it's, um, if it's convenient for you, you know, I use uh, salty surf housings now and they're, and they're in Australia. It's closer to where I am. Uh, the guy that, that does it is open to input from me and, uh, you know, he'll work with me. So that's it. That's nice having that intimate relationship with uh, someone that's building it. So you can recommend something and that's beneficial for, for them, if you're a real professional and can give, you know, real advice that really helps and is useful, um, good feedback. And then it's also nice when you would, you know, you ever pick something up and you're like, oh, I wish this just had that. Yeah. This one thing, it would be so great. I, I actually can go to him and say, hey, can we do that? And he'll be like, yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, that's always fun being part of that R&D process. Yeah. And yeah. there, there's a lot more options now. So you can, you can go with whatever company you want and they're all going to probably do a pretty good job. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. I'm sure that our listeners will have had their notebooks out rapidly writing everything down so they can go out and get their kit. And uh, yeah, thanks for sharing all of your stories with us as well. It's been really cool having you on the show. Thank you very much. And hopefully we'll we'll get some more waves over the next few days. And, I think uh, we will. And I'll give you something to shoot. <laughs> I'll hopefully do my we'll, best. Well, hopefully you'll have a, a nice cover shot for this. Uh, 
for this, this episode. This episode. <laughs> oh, that would be awesome. Thank you so much. No problem. That was the Surf Simply podcast from the Surf Simply coaching resort in Costa Rica. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses for experienced surfers and technical coaching for entry-level surfers, go to surfsimply.com. Thank you.